0: Welcome to the Joan shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: I'm uh, Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. It's my great pleasure to uh, have our guest today. Um, Ta-Nehisi uh, is, uh, is, is you know, really one of the people I have come to, to find a voice I go to atlantic.com to listen to. ta Coates is uh, from Baltimore. He is uh, effectively a professional writer and thinker and someone who has written a memoir at his tender age and is now teaching at MIT as the Martin Luther King Fellow there, which is a great honor. Um, He is a person with a singular voice. And I think that the fact that so many of you are here today means that, uh, that you've connected with him, too. I want to read something from his blog post of this morning, about eight o'clock, was when it was posted. i try
2: not to blush. It is
1: the thing that I like about it is that it is uh, it is got the both the signature of his of his brain, but also his kind of of uh, sensibility that I find very unblogger like in many respects, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, the context is that a few days ago on his blog uh, he challenged the Obamacare issue as a, uh, and framed it as perhaps immoral, because it was something that did not extend its, its benefits far enough into the black and poor communities. And therefore, he posed the question, is it better to settle for half a loaf, or should we go for the whole thing? And his, his blog today is, is, is essentially rethinking that and going over it. But this is how he concludes. I should add on a personal note that I can run hot sometimes. I hope to remain that way, but it doesn't always make for the tightest thinking. Sometimes it even makes me dead wrong. I have said before that you should not come here with the expectation that I will be right. I'm often not. And frankly, I believe this is true of anyone who writes. But I try my best to be honest with you and giving you my thinking as it stands at the moment though it might well change in the next. I have a lifetime's worth of questions. Why is the train to Boston as slow as the bus? (laughs) What really makes planes fly? Will Peter Parker get his body back? Will we be racist to the end? Am I too old to learn French? Why does raw cheese taste so good? Unfortunately, I have very few definite answers. But the pleasure is... uh, reading
2: you, wrestling with the questions. Welcome. Very glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, While well, it is uh, an honor, uh, I should just back up a little bit. Um, I, I, and I opened all of my classes at MIT by telling my students this. I was a, a horrible, horrible student uh, in school, um, just <laughs> abysmal. Um, I failed English in the uh, 11th grade because I, I wouldn't bring uh, Macbeth, we were reading Macbeth, I wouldn't bring it to school. Um, I would just forget it all the time. So I failed English and um, I got kicked out of the magnet school I was at in 11th grade. I think I failed five out of seven classes. You just have to, this is like failure beyond failure. <laughs> um, so I got kicked out. My dad was totally disappointed in me, he told me I was a complete disgrace to the coach's name, washed his hands of me, he said, You know, whatever happens in the next year, you're going to have to leave this house, go in the military, go be a chef, go do whatever you want, but you're going to have to get out of here. And I went into 11th grade and I had to retake my English class. And we had to read Macbeth again. Hi, <laughs> um, and I'm going through Macbeth, and I'm like, my God, this is wonderful. This is incredible. And you know, I, I think about that because of what you just read. Like, I think about like how hard-headed I was as a kid, and how I didn't want to take in certain things, and I would wrestle with stuff, and I would find myself uh, so often wrong, um, and having paid a price for that. Mm-hmm. Um, to have that, you know, sort of record, to have bumbled my way through school and to frankly feel like I bumbled my way through, through writing. I did eventually get into college. I was not a good student at college, ultimately dropped out uh, to, to write, really. Um, to have it, you know, bumbled my way through and to be here uh, talking to this uh, esteemed group of young people uh, here at Harvard is absurd. <laughs> I mean, in the best possible way. I mean, just just totally, totally bizarre. It's not what I expected. Um, and so it's, it's an honor to be here. Um, it's an honor to be teaching at MIT this year. Um, I'm just deeply honored, Thanks. that's what I should say. Um, a few remarks. Um, I, I, um, this um, form I think, was titled uh, The Fact of a Dual Society. Um, and, and I've been thinking a lot about this because um, I was uh, away this summer. I was um, in, in France, bumbling my way through French, uh, bumbling my way through yet another thing. Um, speaking horrible French, enjoying, you know, raw cheese. Cheese was great. Bread was great. I don't know why you can't find good bread over here. It's it's insane. I'm becoming a snob, see? Um, But just having a good time, you know, eating my saucisson, you know, just, you know, being French, right? Um, Trying to walk in the steps of Baldwin and everything. And this verdict came down on Trayvon Martin. And I had never been so happy to be away from the United States. Um, I just felt so distant and removed from it. And I felt guilty about that, but really, really happy about it. Uh, I was off Twitter by that point, but I could tell, you know, I was—I have my Facebook account. Um, my mom's on Facebook now. <laughs> um, my mom was upset. My dad was upset. My entire Facebook wall was, was filled with, you know, black folks who were just really, really upset. It was a national, um, you know, if you consider African Americans a nation, it was a national sort of mourning uh, that, that I was experiencing from a distance. And so while I was glad to emotionally, not be experiencing that. Um, I, I, you know, I felt some guilt for being apart from it. <clears throat> and then even as I you know, explored my feelings, you know, it, it became clear to me that my distance wasn't even just based on being geographically distant. Um, I have spent the past couple years um, trying to re-educate myself about the history of this country. And in the process of that re-education, uh, my sense came to be looking at the verdict even before the verdict, that I didn't really expect anything different. Um, I didn't really expect George Zimmerman to be uh, convicted. Uh, and so it just absolutely stunned me uh, that people were, you know, so upset by the fact that he didn't get committed. I mean, you can look at the case and say, you know, the case wasn't presented that well, there wasn't much, which I think you can say. Um, but even putting all of that aside, um, the idea that someone would get away with killing a 17-year-old kid uh, black kid who had gone to uh, the store to, you know, get Skittles, get a juice during the All-Star break. Um, may sound shocking, but it squares perfectly with the history of this country. Um, that is a hard thing to hear, <laughs> but, but it's a fact. It's a fact. And so one of the things that I've been trying to think about is how we get into this position we're in, when we have these crises come up, we just had another one with this guy, Jonathan Ferrell, who got killed down in uh, North Carolina, got into a car accident, uh, broke out the window, and was going looking for help, uh, banged on this, this woman's door who was home alone by herself. Um, it's about 1 in the morning, and she thought it was her husband. She opens the door and sees this black guy at the door uh, who's yelling and probably hysterical. You know, he's just been in an accident. She closes the door, calls the cops. Um, the cops show up. Who knows what happens we're not sure what happens they they have some dash cam they haven't released it yet but it ends up with one of the cops shooting him uh like nine times just basically emptied his clip into the guy whatever he was doing he was not there to rob anybody you know whatever you know happened before that and again you know it was this sort of mourning, and it was horrifying to people (coughs) my basic proposition though is that this is what happens that Jonathan Farrell's death, that the killing of Trayvon Martin and the lack of any sort of punishment for George Zimmerman is what happens if you understand that America is a dual society, has been a dual society, and probably will be a dual society for a long time to come. Um, I was a history major before I dropped out of school, and, you know, history has always been very, very seductive to me. Uh, There's a great historian by the name of Edmund Morgan. How long do I have for my remarks? Because I don't want to ramble. Go go, go for it. Halfway after. Okay, today, all, right. all right, that sounds go. good. That sounds Because I can go, guys. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it. Because uh, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to like colonial Virginia. So I can, you know, we're talking 1619. We got 300 years of history to get through in about 20 minutes. Um, Edmund Morgan, a great Yale historian who um, wrote a lot about uh, Puritans, that was basically his area. He just died this year, and I never got to meet him. And I was very sad about that because I read his book about. About four or five years ago, and then reread it about two years ago, and it's you know it's like in that good Goodwill, Goodwill Hunting, where he says that book will knock you on your ass. He's talking about how it was, and that book knocked me on my ass. It just reframed everything. And uh, the book is uh, American Slavery, American Freedom. And the reason why is Morgan is taking on uh, this great sort of paradox uh, that we think of as a paradox, and he's arguing it's actually not. And that is how can a society founded on freedom? Um, be actually rooted in slavery. How, how, how can that be? How did that happen? Condoleezza Rice, in you know, her famous remarks, recalled it as uh, America's great birth defect. And that framing is pretty you know, familiar to us, that you know, we tried to do this grand experimental thing. Um, and if not for this one thing, it would have been perfect. You know, this is our, our great mark, our, our sin. But Morgan ar- offers something that's much more provocative. Morgan argues that, in fact, um, these two ideals are not in conflict. That slavery, in fact, made freedom possible. That, it's, you know, that, that we have it backwards. They aren't you know, two opposing things. It wasn't a mistake that it happened this way. And he proves this by looking at the history of labor in colonial Virginia. And he talks about, as you look at Virginia during that period, uh, what you have is a massive amount of land, and you have a problem you know, getting yourself a workforce. And you start with like indentured servants, which you guys all know. And if you look at the history of how folks treated indentured servants, you see some things that are very familiar. You see people being beaten, people being whipped, uh, tricks being played so that the contract can be extended. I'm here at Harvard. I don't think I had to explain indentured servitude. So I'm just <laughs> skipping ahead for you guys. I'm assuming you're up on all of this. Um, but you see all of the hallmarks of what were later you would later see uh, would happen to black people and slavery, right on down to people trading like the uh, contracts for indentured servants, I mean, in card games, just the sort of you know, absolute and complete sin that you would see later. Morgan has these like, British guys coming over to visit and saying, I can't believe people are treated so badly. And this is before slavery becomes the dominant word. Just, he's like, what is going on here? Um, and then you start getting Africans coming here in 1619, you know, roughly, I think, about 10 years after the Virginia colony is founded. Um, and slowly what you see is a process in which slavery becomes the dominant form of labor in colonial Virginia, it's not an immediate process. There's not outright, you know, racism right away. In fact, what you see is what happens in general when people meet at first. You see people, you know, marrying off, mating. I mean, just you know, doing the things that people naturally do. <clears throat> racism comes slowly, and racism comes in response to the need of a bonded labor force that can't really compete, that can be arrested. Um, and can be held in, in, in a particular place. Africans, enslaved Africans, fit that bill. And he's able to show stunningly how the laws take place. You can literally see the formation of a dual society. You can see Africans being stripped of rights slowly, uh, and uh, what would you know, have been considered at that time poor whites or indentured servants, being granted more whites, being granted more rights. And you can see a kind of cleavage being affected, to the point that there's this one law it's passed around 1650 uh, in uh, Virginia. Wherein, if an African and an indentured servant escape together, which, which they were doing, uh, the indentured servant has his time served doubled. And so there's a kind of attempt to part the interest between the two groups of people. You get laws like, should an African strike another indentured servant, uh, he can be killed. You know All of these extra sort of laws that, that are piled on. Until you get a law in 1705, that literally strips the property, whatever property slaves could accumulate uh, in uh, colonial Virginia, uh, has it sold off at the Paris for the benefit of poor whites. I say this because it's very, very important. Um, I may sound despairing, but I actually believe this is quite optimistic, because what it says is that racism isn't natural to us. That racism was put in place by a series of laws that racism is responding to an actual condition that is not natural for me to you know look at you as a white person or you to look at me as a black person and you know for me to think you know horrible things about you and for you to think I'm stupid um not that you think <laughs> but, but it's not natural for that to happen that is responding to a um a set of facts and to the point that um I just want to read these quotes that I, that I think about, you know, like to the point that when you get to the time of the Civil War or just before the Civil War, and people forget this um, slavery is not just a matter of, you know, you being mean to me or me being mean to you. Slavery is a theory of organization. The idea being that if I have this <coughs> enslaved group of people who are capable of doing the drudgery, that everything else is possible. <clears throat> after that. I think about like like John C. Calhoun. I carry these two quotes with me all the time because they mean so much to me. And John C. Calhoun was like the intellectual of Southern slaveholders. Uh, you know, a really, really smart guy. I was just down at his, um, his, his house. It was very interesting. He wasn't that rich, but he was a really, really smart guy. He was an intellectual. And I had to give a talk at Clemson in the Strom Thurmond Center. You know, <laughs> like, Right down the street from John C. Calhoun's house. They you know, said, "You feel? Are you uncomfortable with that at all?" I said, "No, it's great. I love it. It's awesome." <laughs> but Calhoun says um, he's describing, you know, the South and the superiority of the South. And he says, "With us, the two great divisions of society are not rich and poor, but white and black. And all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected as equals." He was serving in, in, uh, in the Senate with a guy by the name of uh, John uh, Henry Hammond. I don't know how many people are familiar with Hammond. He's a piece of work. um Drew Gilpin Faust wrote a great, great book on his diary, which is tremendous, which I would recommend to anyone here. Um, Hammond is trying to uh, explain the superiority of the South, and he says, in a slave country, every free man is an aristocrat. Be he rich or poor, if he does not possess a single slave, he has been been born to all the natural advantages of the society in which he is placed, and all its honors lie open to him, inviting his genius and industry. Sir, I do firmly believe that domestic slavery, regulated as ours is, produces the highest tone, the purest, the best organization of society that has existed on the face of this earth. And so, like, I think, like, one of the things that happens with us is we get into, like, this kind of moral play. You know, was John Henry Hammond a bad guy? (laughs) You know, was Calhoun, did he beat his children? Did he molest people? You know what I mean? Like, but that's not really what it's about. This is about power. And it's about control. It's not about whether you were a nice guy. You know, I had a guy on a blog ask me the other day, he said, so you think the problem is the souls, the racist soul of white people? I said, I don't care about the soul of white people. It's totally irrelevant. Your soul is totally irrelevant. This is a system. It's a systemic thing, to the point that by the time you get to the Civil War, you have someone like um, Alexander Stevens, who's the vice president of the Confederacy, actually arguing with Jefferson, saying Jefferson totally, totally had it wrong all men are not created equal. Our republic, as he called it, is founded on the exact opposite principle, that all men are not created equal, that slavery is great, there's a great system, and it's the foundation of what we hope to be uh, the greatest republic ever. And the thing you need to remember, and somebody reminded me of this this morning, it was a second away from happening. Gettysburg turns a different way, and you have a very different country. You have a republic based on slavery right on our borders. It's in, the, it's in their constitution right there. Mm-hmm. 600,000 people died in the Civil War. That was 150 years ago. I, I love that Lewis C.K. joke, it's two 75 75-year-old ladies back-to-back. Back. Um, it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. My, my contention is that your history matters, um, that when I think it was 2%, 2% of the American population dies in a war, I think it was 10% of Southern white males, that that, that matters. That leaves scars on you. That, that marks who you are. We recognize this in every area of our life. We understand that most of us were not at Valley Forge, but we feel some sort of connection to the sacrifice for the people that suffered there. Um, there are Americans whose ancestors came here less than 100 years ago. They still celebrate July 4th. Um, we recognize that our history means something. If you hear anybody talk about policy, about you know the deficit, about why we need to do something about global warming, they talk about leaving something for their kids, the idea that, you know, this is a continuous experiment. My argument is that in, you know, the matter of white supremacy, which is one of the most dominant and most, you know, powerful forces in American history, it leaves marks. It matters. And you can see that, you know, going out into after the Civil War where you literally see the South erecting a dual society to the point that you have, like, a senator from South Carolina, uh, Ben Tillman. I saw Tillman Hall while I was at Clemson, too. Ben Tillman founded Clemson. Literally uh, bragging about lynching people on the Senate floor. Um, you look at New Deal legislation, and there's a great book out right now by Ira Katz Nelson, Fear Itself, which is an excellent history of the New Deal. And he makes the case, you know, and pretty persuasively, that without, you know, Southern segregationist Democrats who, you know, were totally fine backing a welfare state, you know, at that point, totally fine with expanding the social safety net, as long as you excluded black people. Um, it couldn't have happened without that. All of these things that we as, you know, and I count myself as a proud progressive, you know, that we think of as great progressive accomplishments, GI Bill, Social Security. Um, these don't happen without negotiations with white supremacy. These are facts. And they don't go away because, you know, in 1960, you know, we passed some pretty good laws and did some great things. Um, in fact, in some way, they get reified. You know, uh, we think about, you know, all of the great things that that King did, and, you know, we honor King, we talk about how great King uh, was, but the thing I always tell people, see, you have to understand, um, black people at that point have been enduring violence for over 200 years, right, just total, total violence upon their bodies. King, you know, takes this and makes this into, like, a kind of high art, a high protest art, and is very, very successful, and... For all of that talk of love and for all of that talk of nonviolence, which we, you know, justly honor, they murdered him. I mean, he was shot. And if you are black and you're in 1968, as my father was, as my mother was, you take a message about where you stand in society from that. That's a message about what the actual social contract is between you and the country in which you live. When you say you're best ambassador out there, your most moral you know, person who's saying, you know, don't even, you know, uh, uh, give up even the right to defense of your very person. And he's shot. There's a message that's sent to you. So when we get to this period, you know, I've gone a long way, 300 years later, what I'm saying is that over and over and over again, we've reified this idea of a dual society. You can see it in the statistics today. I think if you run the poverty numbers right now, um, they haven't changed since 1970. Uh, the wealth gap between blacks and whites, it's like 10 times, it's like some ridiculous number. I think like, just reading some stats, the average college educated uh, African-American has like $500 in wealth. It's some ridiculous number. Um, The Manhattan Institute put out a great study um, a few months back. It's called The End of the Segregated Century. It's a very, very nice title, except when you dig into their data, you find that African-Americans are still the most segregated population in this country, the most segregated population that has ever been in history. Um, the great Doug Massey, in his book, talks about at the highest level. If you look at segregation among immigrants, uh, it doesn't even reach the lowest level among African Americans. Uh, the evidence of us as a dual society is so overwhelming and just so clear, <laughs> you know, um, that I would argue we take great effort and expend, you know, great energy a- a avoiding the fact of the thing because it's so depressing. It's so very, very, very depressing that, you know, we could be the-, the land of the free, that we can go over to other countries and, you know, talk about exploiting our democracy and have this great undemocratic thing, you know, at our core that, you know, as uh, Morgan argued, actually made us possible. Um, it's so, so, so depressing. So where do we go from there? I don't know. I don't know. It's like I said in that intro, right? I got all these questions, right? But, not, but no answers. But no answers. I mean, lately I've been really, really depressed and wondering whether you know, we'll ever get over this. But, but I do know this. As long as we're okay with the dual society, as long as we're okay with doing nothing about it as a country, and I don't mean doing nothing about inequality. I, you know, I don't mean, like, doing nothing about poverty in America. I mean specifically doing nothing about the fact that black America right now is a second society. As long as we're okay with that, Trayvon Martin will happen. That's just the fact. I mean, that will – and no one should act surprised. No one should be – you know, when you hear, you know, about uh, Jordan Davis – I don't know, any of you know about the Jordan Davis case? I thought I was at (laughs) Harvard. Jordan Davis is a young man. He's another sad story. He's a 17-year-old young man. Uh, I think um, Davis was in Georgia. I don't want to say he was in Florida. I don't want to put too much on Florida. He might have been in Florida, though. (laughs) Florida's crazy. He might well Florida's buckwild. buck wild. He might have been in Florida. But this young man was out with his friends. Um, White guy and his wife pull up next to him. Um, The wife goes in or the girlfriend goes into the convenience store. Uh, he doesn't like the music these black kids are playing. He tells them to turn it down. Some sort of conversation ensues. He shoots them. He unloads his clip and kills this boy in his car and then drives off, you know, and it's like on the run. When they ask him, why'd you do it? He said, well, I think I saw a shotgun. He said, I, I had a shotgun in the car. Of course, they found no shotgun. There was no shotgun. But as long as you have a dual society, as long as that's okay, those are the sorts of things that will happen. And so, you know, my contention is that when it does, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. So, is that depressing enough for
3: you?
2: So,
1: okay, let me take my my position at the head of the table to ask for the first couple of questions, and then sure. we'll open it to the floor. So where do you put the election and the election of Barack Obama in right. this situation that you've described? And how does... Someone like you respond when it is, you know, a capricious, cruel act of young black men against a white guy like that guy that was killed in in Nevada? And is that a part of the same thing or is it something that you see somewhat differently?
2: Um, Well, I'll take uh, the first question. Um, To say that we live in a dual society is not to say that we have not made any progress at all. Um, and it's not to say, and I, 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 I want to be very clear about this, it's not to say that um, 2013 is the same as 1983 or 1963 or, or, or 1943. There's some you know, big bright lines, thing that we, things that we remain the same about. You know, I have to be honest with you, and this is like the source of you know, any optimism I have. If you had told me in 2003 that a black man was going to be president, um, I would have laughed at you. And I would argue that you know most of you in this room who are not in middle school, <laughs> you know, who understood the significance of that would have laughed too. Um, so we, you know, we don't. It's obviously a huge, huge accomplishment. I, I think um, one of the things about America is, and this is one of the good things. My dad was like. Um, in the Black Panther Party, far, far, far to the left of anybody in this room, far to the, My dad might have voted for Cynthia McKinney for president. I mean, just way, <laughs> way, way over here. But my dad is also an, an entrepreneur. Um, he runs his own business. He runs a printing shop in Baltimore. Um, he came up from total, total poverty in, uh, in Philadelphia. And one day we were talking, and he said, you know, I, I can't really imagine you know, what I've done here as possible in anywhere else except America. Um, we're very good about individuals. You know, we, we really, really have a, a high degree of respect for um, individual freedom and individual liberty and individual accomplishment. Um, I loved being in France, but I think if I had been there as a kid, I would have been totally lost. I think I would have had big, big troubles. I think I, it was, it's much better that, you know, I was raised here. I say to the same. That we've removed the bar. I think in terms of what specific individuals can do, I think that's, that's, that's pretty clear. I think we're really, really willing to tolerate that. It gets harder when you're talking about systemic mass populations. I think that becomes significantly much, much more difficult. Um, and I, you know, I should add that even though we've removed the bar, we are still very skeptical about black people that accomplish things. Um, it is often said that, you know, when Bill Clinton was trying to pass health care that, you know, he got all the vitriol in, in, of the world. And he did, you know, from the right. He definitely did. What did not happen is people did not say, you are trying to pass healthcare as reparations. That that didn't happen. Um, and I would argue that you could, you know, make the case that even Bill Clinton's presidency was racialized, but that's that's another point. Um, the amount of vitriol that that Obama gets. I, I you know, I think about this like um, you think about the history of the filibuster, and you have against lynching. You know, you have against civil rights legislation, and then you have it at its high point with the black president. And I just, you know, maybe that's a coincidence. I have no idea. Um, I tend to think not. You know. Um, and your second question. Sorry, I, I ramble
1: about the about the a case, like when those young black men for. To amuse themselves, apparently, at least that's the way. This is the frame. baseball
2: player, yeah, the
1: pitcher from yeah. Australia. Mm-hmm. I, I, my my yeah. question is: is this is that part of the same thing you were talking about? No, or is it I, I think, else?
2: well, I mean, to the extent that um, I think there was a white kid with them too. <laughs> Not that it makes it any better, but um, let's just presume it was a it was a hate crime. Let's just presume they wanted to go out and kill somebody white. Um, that's bigotry, and I would never make the case that the African American community is free of bigots. Um, we have our, you know, our, plenty of our share of bigots, you know. But again, my argument is not, you know, I don't know that, you know, we can wipe prejudice from the hearts of people. But I, I'm much more concerned about something systemic, you know, about how law and policy reinforces certain things and how our traditions reinforce certain things. Um, I, I, you know, I'll just make the simple case that, you know, across the long sweep of American history, um, the idea that black bodies are fields for violence, you know, is much more potent than the idea that white bodies are, are fields for violence for black
1: people. Well, I would now like to open this forum first to students. And if you're a student, you have something that you'd like to put on the table, just hold your hand. Yes. I was going to connect um,
3: what you said about John Hammond from the Slavery Defenders who mm-hmm. wrote um, a college thesis essentially
2: examining the literature. You did. George Fitzhugh. Ah, oh, Fitzhugh, cannibals, cannibals All. Yeah, that's and a great one. He absolutely. was crazy. He wanted to enslave white people, too. Like he was like, most white people are fit. That was too far. He was like, way too <laughs> radical for so. Yeah, he was beyond the pale. So like, they
3: were pretty clear writers, pretty clear thinkers, like the pros. They were. They were. And I tell people that all the time. I mean, a lot of the justifications were, uh, like, look at slaves, look at these black people, and then justification is they're sick. They, you know, they die all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, look, they can't read. You know, like essentially you're forcing them in this brutal system. You're not educating them. Right. You are working them to death, and then you're like they're these sickly dumb people, and essentially would argue back from there. Mm-hmm. Um, would create these awful conditions for people, <clears throat> and then justify it. And I was going to connect that to you know your recent comments like how you opened up about uh, Medicaid expansion and like policies that. How the southern governors have expanded Medicaid, and how essentially
2: policies that
1: create we we need we need a question. (laughs) We need a question. Yeah,
3: sorry. Sorry, I took Um, up some of your time. What policies do you see now as holding, reinforcing
2: a dual society? Well, I mean, uh, right. The obvious one is incarceration, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that by far is is (coughs) obviously the biggest one. Uh, I think I ran the numbers one time, and it's like um, I want to say five percent of all incarcerated people in the entire world are black men. Um, I mean, I, that is just, just on so, so many levels. Um, that, I think, you know, really, really, really reinforces. I, You know, the, the Medicaid thing, which I talked about, you know, some, is, is a little looser. Although, you know, I can't, you know, escape the fact that if, you know, you run through the old Confederacy, um, you know, w- what do you find? What do you find? So, um, but if I were looking for anything, it would be prison. I mean, that would be the huge thing. This housing crisis... Uh, Doug Massey has a great paper on uh, segregation's con- contribution to the foreclosure crisis and how segregation basically created a community of marks who, you know, then go in and be had and ripped off. Um, I think it's there too. You know, those are probably two big ones I would think about. Students, Yes.
3: Um, first of all, I've been reading your blog for a long time and it's been incredibly influential on <laughs> and, and thank you for all of your rigorous and creative thinking. Um, and to put you on the spot a little bit, a couple of years ago, you um, were writing a little bit about working on two books, a novel, um, and uh, an expansion of the Civil War article. And A, I'm curious because I'd be excited to read them, and then B, if they're not actually in the process, I'm curious about your intellectual process around that work and how your interests have shifted.
2: They're um, still in way. the process. Okay. They're still in the process. <laughs> If they're baking. <laughs> I, I ask you to
3: write about your process. going you talk a little bit about your process and sort of how you're balancing your various interests in writing these days?
2: Horribly. <laughs> um, frankly, I try not to do things like this. I try not to talk too much. Um, I, talk, I already talk too much. I try really hard not to go on TV. Um, I am most happiest when I am with my family and when I have time to write. That's pretty much all I want. You know? Is blogging easy? I wouldn't say it's easy. I wouldn't say it's easy. Um, it's much more like sketching, though. I mean, it's not like, you know, where, you know, like an article, you know, in the magazine that's full paint, all colors and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more like sketch work. Um, so, no, it's not easy. Um, but, um, no, horribly, I don't have any technique. I don't have any, like, process. I just, you know, I really, you know, t- you know, try to knock things out one after the other, you know, and be very, very aggressive about that. Um, and clear as much time as I can, you know, to to do that. Um, I can tell you
1: that if you if you go on <coughs> the lang.com site, you can find him talking about writing, and the main thing he talks about is perseverance.
2: Well, that's true. I did do yes. <laughs> so that, that is important. A high tolerance for failure is very important. Yes, it's extremely important. Yes, over here. Hi. Um I have a question more um, sort of about your um, when you're wearing your journalist hat? Um, over the past
4: ten
3: years, so much and with social media and Twitter and all of this. What, have, if any, changes have you seen in these sorts of conversations, the topics that you um, talk about so much? Has, have
2: there been changes to the conversation with the advent of all these new Yes, it's a lot more open. It's a lot more open. And I don't, you know, like, part of the problem is, like, I I started before the advent of blogging. Um, it's so funny because you know, I think most people know, like, me through the blog. But I was writing for twelve years in print before, you know, I was ever blogging. And but having said that, like I came in through alternative media, uh, which is just a totally different way of coming in than if you interned up through the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. Um, and I also came in at a time when, to be frank, um, I, w- I was like really, really angry. I was when I was at Howard. Um, Andrew Sullivan published uh, the Bell curve excerpt, um, and. I just can't tell you how infuriating that was. And I can remember just, you know, it's funny because I, I like Andrew a lot now, right? Um, I can just remember walking around Howard's campus, like, hot. You know, like, just really, really, really hot. And mostly hot because there was nowhere to go with it. You know, I guess the worst thing, to, like, be hot and have no... I, I read um, uh, your president again, Drew Gilpin Foster, She has this great book on plantation women. Who had to stay home, you know, and tend the plantation during the Civil War? And this woman has this great phrase because they felt so useless. They wanted to go out and fight for slavery, but uh, one of the women says she says, "I, I, I lack a. I really wish I had a field for my energies," and she's so burning with it, right, for this cause, for slavery. But she can't go out and fight. And that was how I felt, you know, as, as a young person. I just I felt like very, very much on fire. And if anything, what blogging has done, I think has you know um, opened it up which I think is a good thing, you know. I, there's all this, you know, talk about, well, you know, you don't have gatekeepers. Look, I lived in a time of gatekeepers. Gatekeepers aren't perfect either. You know, no, no system is, is, is perfect. Um, I much prefer this, you know, sort of open, you know, free-flowing. You know, it means that, you know, certain things get printed that probably shouldn't get printed. But in the era of gatekeepers, a lot of things got printed that shouldn't get printed. It's like the bell curve. You know, um, that's my, you know, background. When you can have a major magazine, you know, questioning, you know, the innate intelligence of African Americans, um, I'm all for getting of gatekeepers. You know, I'll make you a revolutionary real quick. <laughs> yes.
3: Um, in the Master's in Public Policy program, we have a core course that has involved some discussion of biases, and it's unfolded in a way that's been really difficult for a lot of students because the conversation doesn't necessarily start from a point of acknowledging the systemic nature of racism um, with the unflinchingly as you have here. So for those of us who are trying to operate in a school system where, you know, We understand the individual intentions of our peers and our professors. We want to be respectful and are building those friendships and relationships. But you're starting the conversation from a completely different place if you're willing to acknowledge this as systemic versus just a bias or just an individual issue. How much time do you expend trying to convince people of the systemic nature of this and start the conversation from that point because it's so integral to framing it versus just trying to deal with these one-off issues as they come up?
2: You're such an optimist. you know i i can't convince anyone i think like that's the first thing I'm, right, I'm not you know gonna convince anyone you know i mean i might but i'm not i i, I think like I, i'm very dubious on, on like so i think like there are people you know who obviously you know want to know more things and you know we want to go back and forth and we want to learn something right and that, that's one group of people and then there are people who um and we can never forget this who have an interest in their beliefs you know, it's tough to, you know, tease out which is which, right? But I understand that, you know, beliefs are not uninterested. People believe things because they, you know, uh, hold up other aspects of their life. Um, if you accept that we have a dual society, then, you know, okay, so what follows from that? What does that mean? We, what are we supposed to do then? You know, what what actually follows? It, you know, it can be really, really troubling when you start thinking like that. Um, so... I mean, it's going to sound horrible given my job. I don't actually have much faith in dialogue, you know? Like, I don't really spend too much time. You know, I can tell you what I think. You know, I'll I'll gladly listen to what you think. Um, But I don't know. I don't know how much we move people. I certainly don't write that way. You know, I mean, you're you're young and you're a student, and, you know, I hate to bring you that message. But um, if I were in your shoes, quite frankly, um, more than trying to, you know, get other people to see certain things... I would be trying to, you know, open myself up and trying to see what I could get. You know, I don't make people that you're talking to right. That's not what I'm saying. You know, um, but I don't, I don't know, you know, how much energy you can expend trying to, you know, convince other people. You know, because the fact of the matter is sometimes people don't want to see things. You know, everybody ain't coming to the table with goodwill. Yes. Sorry about that answer. <laughs>
3: So, I'm really glad that you're speaking in this space. Um, I had a question about how you, given that African Americans have a very different violent history in this country, but how do you encompass other communities of color in your analysis of dual society, given the type of violence that all communities of colors have, have faced in this country and are facing right now? How do you, I'm just curious how you think about that.
2: I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the historical background and other to be, and I'm being straight with you. You know, I can tell you, like, what I'm for and, like, you know, what policies I'm for. And I can, you know, you know speak out you know, against bigotry and prejudice. Like, I can do all of that, right? And I can, you know, talk to you about how, you know, I like a, you know, the idea of a multi ethnic society, um, you know, basic sort of progressive stuff. But that's thin. I don't, I don't, I frankly do not have um, the grounding, for instance, in, say, Hispanic history or Latino history. Um, I certainly don't have the grounding in Asian American history um, to really, really give that kind of analysis. Um, those are my limitations. Those are my limitations. The one thing I am you know, suspicious of is I, I really, really do believe that, and you know, what I just said is coming from that, that people's individual histories matter. You know, and I think like maybe this is like one of the things we overlook in coalition politics. You're right that all, you know, communities experience, you know, some, you know, degree of, you know, violence and bigotry. Uh, You look at the immigrant history of even people who we now consider white, you know, and you can find some really, really awful things, like lynchings, by the way, you know. Um, But I do think we make a mistake when we throw it all into the same bag, you know. And I think we we, we need to understand, not even be respectful. I was going to say be respectful, but that's not what I mean. Understand, like, the differences. In each experience so i I'm, I'm not like blowing you off um, but i can't really give you an, an intelligent and an informed answer that's what i should say do you
1: do you think that this has something to do simply with dominant and less dominant i mean if you go to pre you know, go to Iraq, you've got, you know, Sunnis and Shiites and one is a dominant in one place and one is dominant right. in the other. I mean, how does that play into the way you sort of frame these dual systems, the way you're framing it that way?
2: Well I, I think it's, it's all about power. I think um there is nothing again, um I I, I had a great class uh, when I was at Howard, um the guy who taught uh, my European history survey, he was a black guy and he when he went into European history he had to be one of the only black people going into European history. Certainly speaking, like he speaks like Dutch and Russian and just, you know, lonely, lonely place. Um, <laughs> but, but one of the cool things he did was he talked about, like, the history of people who we now consider black, um, people with African ancestry in the European world before slavery. And you could totally see from the art, from his presentation, that this was like, a, this is a new thing. What happened here is new. There's nothing about how I look, nothing in my bones, nothing in you guys' bones that necessarily says that the way power is organized today is the way it has to be organized. It wasn't, you know, organized like that for a very, very long time. It became organized that way because of specific reasons. Um, so I, you know, I think that's totally what it's about. You know, I don't think there's any reason why we have to be this way. Um, again, you know, being in France, you know, I, I would just say as an African-American, you know, um, my treatment was very, very different than it was here. However, I would add to that that I'm not France's problem, <laughs> you know. And if you talk to somebody, you know, from the Maghreb, if you talk to somebody from West Africa, as I did, their argument was totally, totally different, you know. Um, we kind of look the same, but you know, we don't get treated the same. Mm. Yes. Hi, uh, thanks for talking. I wanted to ask you. A
3: question. And as a, you know African-American writer, it's a pretty interesting
2: claim to stake. How do you respond to people like that? Do you, um, do you see striations within the black community? Or it just seems like completely opposed to the idea of a dual society to say that we live in a post-black, post-racial society. I, c- I can't respond to that. <laughs> I, just, I mean, it's just not serious. I mean, I, I, you know, I, don't, I, I know, like I, like, I know his book. I just don't, I mean, what does that even mean? What do you mean, post-black? I mean, who, like, what does that mean? Like, what does that actually fundamentally, I, I can't respond to that. Yes. I hope you're not insulted. I mean, I don't I don't mean Could not answer. to respond to you. Yes. I love to talk about that one. Um, so I think uh, you made a really optimistic argument earlier on talking about how racism is not a natural way of you know living. It's kind of this system that was created by these laws. And what I heard is, oh, that's really optimistic. I think that means that we can approach these laws and try to think about policies in a way that can actually reverse some. Then you kind of bring me to this point of how do you actually negotiate with white supremacy on a policy level? I really don't think that I'm, I'm kind of cynical about that possibility, but I wonder: do you have any kind of like real practical application of kind of that negotiation? Do you think that's possible? Do you think in this current state of climate it seems like nothing's possible? Uh, well, it's not. It's not possible right now. Okay. Um, what would it look like in the future, maybe? Honestly, okay. I think reparations. I mean, I think um, I, I'm working on an article for The Atlantic arguing for reparations. Um, so I've been have had my head like buried in like reparations arguments um, for a while now. Um, I think reparations, and and I think um, part of our problem is we think about racism in America as people not being nice to each other, as you know, a kind of moral stain. Um, but the history of racism and white supremacy towards black people in this country since 1619 is one of pilfering. It's one of plunder. It's one of taking from one group and giving to another group. You know, This goes to, I can take your kid and put your child on the auction block. I can destroy your family for profit. Um, This goes to, in the South, I can tax you um, and not give you any representation at all. I can take your tax dollars and use them to improve systems uh, in public universities that you can't attend. Um, this goes on the federal level to erecting, you know, a, a whole housing program, um, wherein I take your tax dollars and I insure other people's homes, but forbid you from participating in that market. Um, this is plunder. This is plunder. I mean, this is hundreds of years of plunder, and that's, you know, basically what you find uh, across the board. Uh, the social contract. I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking on my man's name. Um, I can't believe John I'm blank. Locke. Who wrote this? John, John Locke. Thank you. No, 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 sorry. Um, the French guy. Thank you. That's why I came to Harvard. <laughs> he has this beautiful line about slavery. And he says, slavery is, you know, he's you know, arguing about taking a slave in war, and people are saying, well, that's, you know, better than killing someone. He says, no, no, no. Slavery is useful killing. You've killed someone usefully. And that's like the history in this country. And until that's like squarely faced, even if it was squarely faced, like, you know what, we did this. We do not have the ability to, like, make it right. We, we do not have the ability to pay it back. It's too much. But we understand that, and we will take it into account in all our policy going forward. That would be great. But how
4: does it get taken into
2: account? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I, we could –
3: Is not getting any kind of oxygen in the national media or seeming
2: like from national policymakers. And I was wondering if you could address that in the context of the dual society. Sure. I mean, I my first book is all about that. Um, I grew up in uh, West Baltimore in the 1980s, um, and it is about what it means to grow up in a black neighborhood and feel under threat, you know, from violence uh, from people who look like you, who are presumably like you. Um, I, I can't speak for the national media, but I know, um, you know, in my time, you know, I don't know if anybody... The problem is I don't have the right age ethnic group uh, distribution here. But <laughs> one of the biggest songs <laughs> of my youth was Self-Destruction. And it got all these young you know, African-American rappers together who were the most prominent. And the song literally is called Self-Destruction. I mean, that's the name. You know, it don't get much more explicit than that. All through my youth, and I know, you know I, I left Harlem about three years ago, but uh, it was pretty frequent to see people marching down the street. You know, anti-violence rallies were pretty common. Um, I'm pretty sure if you go to Chicago, they're pretty common even now. Um, How ABC covers that, how CNN covers that, how the New York Times covers that, you know, I can't really answer for. Um, But I've always written about it, you know, and, you know, personally myself. Um, I would hasten to add that, you know, in the communities where that violence happens, um, there's a way of discussing this as though it's separate from, you know, policy and separate from a dual society those communities were made. You know, there's all this talk about all the shooting, you know, going on in Chicago right now, which is, you know, horrible. I was just in Chicago, you know, for most of the spring doing reporting for this piece, and the thing that people always forget is those ghettos in Chicago were constructed. They were made. They were made by policy. There was a policy of segregation, of building the projects specifically where they were and keeping black people living in certain places. I can remember coming to Chicago as an adult in 1995, riding down the Dan Ryan and looking at what was then, it's not Darren New York more, that massive range of public housing. And I feel so stupid now because I was thinking my thinking was this happened by accident. Like who would do that? It must have just been somebody's bad idea. No, it wasn't an accident at all. I mean it was an entire, you know, process, you know, about mm. why, you know, that housing ended up as it was. Um, I think people that break the law, especially violent people that break the law, should be punished, you know, um, because I think they, you know, terrorize other people that are, you know, living in that neighborhood, living on that block. I, you know, personally experienced that. Um, I have a son, you know, now that's 13. You know, I think about that right now. Um, At the same time, you know, as on the level of policy, you know, you have to sit back. And if you presume the humanity of black people, you say black people are no different in their bones than anybody else. Why would that happen? You know, we have to ask, us, well, why, why, why would that happen? You know? Well, I guess my question was I just want to follow up. Mm-hmm. So I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. Yes, yes. My question was why isn't there more of a larger national discussion on this issue? I don't know. <laughs> I don't yes, know. So, over, over here. Yes.
3: I'm kind of behind a
2: pole here. Oh, uh, it seems like um, you know many black political thinkers wouldn't disagree with your premise about America's foundation and, and the duality. But what they were primarily concerned about is the black response, philosophically, politically, ethically, aesthetically. And so when you're speaking to black audiences, or if you do, given what seems to be a kind of pessimistic kind of view, what do you tell them about how do they cope with this reality? How do they keep going? How do they keep striving? What advice or what instruction or... I tell them, and I do speak to black audiences. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, this is actually unusual. Um, <laughs> this is not, like, my usual deal. Um, and, I, and frankly, you know, for the book, I'm often in West Baltimore talking to those same kids. I wrote that book for that reason, you know. I, I wanted somebody, which you can all buy, by the way. <laughs> Got to get that out there. Um, I, I wrote that book, you know, to 13-year-old me. I mean, that, that, that you know, it's all about, sorry, I would have came here and talked about the book, too. I could do that, too. Um, but it, it's all about, you know, growing up in, you know, a, geez, I hate to call it, I don't it was not a ghetto. Um, growing up in an inner city neighborhood, let's say that. You know, in, in West Baltimore. Um, I don't know how you cope, you know? Um, again, I, I don't, I'm not like somebody who has a ton of answers. You know, I try to give my analysis of what's going on. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't have the solutions. I don't have the, solutions.
1: the name of the book, by the way, is <laughs> The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and An Unlikely Road to
2: Manhood. you got to hustle, right? you got to hustle your product, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And at the
3: beginning of the conversation, uh, you touched on uh, the immorality of the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Spend
2: on that argument, the argument involved, yeah, I don't think yes, <laughs> I don't think the more the uh, Affordable Care Act is actually immoral. But um, one of the things there was this, this uh, New York Times story that came out um, Friday, and it found, as most people have been following, this, suspected the fact of making it so. So originally, the Affordable Care Act was as it was written, Medicaid had to be expanded. It just had to. There was no out. And then you know the ruling that came down allowed states to opt out of the expansion. Um, I think it's out of the people. I'm going to try to get this right. Out of the people who are going to be uncovered, um, a disproportionate number of those people are black and obviously poor. I think it's like two thirds, like of, of poor black people are, are going to miss out. Um, don't quote me on that, but it's some stunning number. It was in the Times story, and this like fits a pattern of expansion of you know benefits, social safety net, again, you know uh, FHA loans up through GI bills, Social Security where you see um, in the early years black folks getting, you know, less out of it. Um, it's heartbreaking to see that right now. You know, like I was, I, I was just heartbroken. You know, I kind of talked to my wife. I went on a complete rant, you know, about it. It was just utterly, utterly heartbroken to see, to see that happening again along um, the same lines. Uh, and now what people will tell you is the law is written in such a way that within five years all those states adopt it anyway. You know, they'll, they'll have to. I mean, there'll be other interests pushing against them uh, that have nothing to do with, you know, the health of Af- African Americans. But um, people are going to suffer in the meantime, you know. Some people are going to suffer in the meantime. You know, a gap will be created in the meantime. It doesn't make it okay that we fixed Social Security five years later. People suffered, you know, while we were dithering. And um, that's hard to take. <laughs> that's hard to take. Me?
0: Yeah, I want to go back to Baltimore um, just because I know my daughter lives there. I know a little bit about it, mm-hmm. and, and I, I kind of to say, "What's the matter with Baltimore?" I mean, it has Maryland has a very progressive mayor, as far I mean, governor as far as I can tell. You guys have a very progressive mayor. There's a lot of kind of goodwill that Baltimore not be as a mess, as horrible as it is. I mean, you, you know, you're right downtown, and you've got boarded up buildings next to the big hotels. Now. I mean, it's, it's, a weir- it's a weirdly dysfunctional place. Is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I I've spent day. a lot of time in West Baltimore, too. Don't, don't get me started. Um, it, it seems to me that what's depressing to me is that there seems to be this kind of institutional commitment and goodwill there that you might not find in these other cities, but it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. Now, you've grown up in Baltimore. You know, your parents <laughs> are active. I
2: mean, did I get it wrong? Um, I think what happened was Baltimore, there was a a, a boom in certain cities, in certain cities, uh, in cities like New York, in Chicago, and, you know, other cities um, during the 90s. And Baltimore didn't experience that comeback. Um, Why that would be, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I can't, you know. No, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not going to talk out of my ass. I'm not going to do that. I don't know. That's what I'm going to say. You get in these positions, it's like a, you know, this instinct to sort of talk like you're at a bar somewhere. You know, but I'm not, I'm not going to talk out of my ass. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's weird, though, because I think like, one of the things that happens is if you grow up in a place... Um, I knew Baltimore was violent in the 80s. And Baltimore in the 80s, by the way, was more violent then than it, was, than it is now. It's not even, it's not even comparable Chicago too, um, I knew it was violent. I knew somewhere in the world people lived differently, but I liked Baltimore and I loved it. And I thought when I went to college, I was coming back there. And not for my wife wanting to go to New York, I, you know, I probably would have. You know, um, I still have dreams of moving. They have great crab cakes. <laughs> I said, and I'm not being flip here. What I'm saying is like your perception of a city is, you know, not always, you know, drawn through sociology, you know, but sometimes through your, your, your direct experience there. Why is it not doing better? I don't know. It's probably a lot smarter people than me to answer that. Joe. Um. Hi. Hi.
4: <laughs> I was, you know, I was struck uh, a couple of last month or so with the fiftieth anniversary of the first march on Washington. How many white people were in that crowd? Mm-hmm. I would have been in that crowd too, but my parents wouldn't let me, <laughs> and I was a good boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I wonder if you've thought and have some kind of an explanation for why, at that moment, uh, when for the first time white Americans were confronting the crazy-ass immorality of racism mm-hmm. in the country, mm-hmm. uh, when it was when when it was when the absolute moral right was on the side of African Americans, mm-hmm. um, that at that very same time. Out of wedlock births exploded mm-hmm. in the black community, mm-hmm. and the crime rate exploded exponentially. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the crime figures for New York for armed robbery, mm-hmm. which is kind of the benchmark rate, they increased five five times mm-hmm. between 1962 and 1967, and another five times between 1967 and 1972.
2: Mm-hmm. So. What happened? So the crime thing, I'm not even prepared. I, I feel like I've read so many people try to explain why, you know, like what happened in terms of crime. So that I'm I'm not I'm really not prepared. I even now I don't know. I mean, we have all this debate. But about... there was a social okay, was something... right, right? No, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm not going to duck your question. <laughs> um, the out of wedlock birth thing, I've done a little bit more research on it. And I am, you know, much more prepared to answer. The, the fact of the matter is, um, the out of wedlock birth rate, as compared to between white. And Black has always been, I mean, it's a great sociological paper I linked to, and I'll send it to you. Um, but they've now been able to go to, like, 1890, and you see, like, a similar thing. You do see a big, big change in the 1960s. I could give you, you know, all of the standard answers, you know, in terms of, you know, you look at what happened to jobs. Um, I strongly suspect, and I know this, you know, just from my own family history, uh, the social pressure of claiming you're married, or maybe you, you're not, you know what I mean? Uh, the stigma of out-of-wedlock births that are actually happening, you know, and admitting that, you know, was changing. Our whole perception of marriage was changing. Um, beyond that, though, I, I think just, just, just even, even larger than that is just this whole idea of why we think of marriage as the ultimate answer. You know, like, my thing about this is if we can all agree that you know two parents in a household is better, right? And I, you know, having a kid believe that. You know. Why would that happen? You know, what 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 would be innate to black people that would make that happen? You know, um, if I reject that, you know, and I do, if I say that there's nothing, you know, sort of particular about us that would make that happen. Then I would have to look at the sociological forces again. I mean, I know this sounds like an old standard argument, but it always strikes me that when we talk about the decline of our cities, you know, and decline of our, you know, industrial workforce and jobs and work disappearing, we begin in like 1968. You know, Tom Segrest's this great book on Detroit, um, Origins of the Urban Crisis, and you can see this happening in like '47. You know, work base sort of really, really going away. Um, This idea of marriage, you know, if we want to, you know, really, really. Increase the uh, African American out of wedlock birth weight. and at this point, you know, because we're looking at out of wedlock birth weight uh, among white people right now, that is where it was when the Moynihan report came out among black people, and that was like crisis point, you know, at that point. Um,
4: yeah, it's Charles Murray's work, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, we need marriageable men. <laughs> you know, you have to ask yourself. You know, we need marriageable men. You know, I know right now, looking at you know what's going on with incarceration, you know, a number of black men that are you know. Under the eye of the state, uh, the employment prospects of black men. Um, if I was a black woman, I wouldn't marry either. I wouldn't tie my my, my uh, financial prospects to that. I mean, that you know strikes me as a, a totally, totally logical decision. You know, so I think if anything, you know, we need more marriageable men. We have One more question here.
4: You you started out uh, talking about your perception of the Trayvon, the reaction to the Trayvon Martin case when you were abroad, and you were saying that uh, you were surprised at the outrage over it because you had expected, you just expected that verdict. Do you see any hope in the outrage over it that maybe people are not anymore expecting that kind of verdict?
2: Do I see any hope in that? In the fact that people did... <coughs> We're no, not, we're, we're, no. We're, no. we're always—it's funny. Like you can read these documents of black folks. I mean, we are optimistic to a fault. I mean, to like there's a—I mean, this is so sad. I posted about this the other day, but you know, I was reading through um, this paper actually, a reparations paper. This guy, and he's talking about how, in, after Reconstruction, black folks were so convinced forty acres and a mule was coming. Like it was a deep, deep-seated belief that southerners. This guy came up with this con where he would paint sticks. And sell them to black people and say, this is your 40 acres. You know, and he would sell these, like, fake deeds to illiterate black farmers that couldn't read. Um, we always think the best of this country, you know, maybe because we're from here. You know, and by from here, I mean, like, African-American identity was, was formed here. I mean, they really, you know, the African is obviously part of that. But, like, you know, the motherland for black folks is like Mississippi. Um, and maybe because we're so, so very American. Like, we really can't go, you know, going somewhere is just not an option at all. Um, we're optimistic to a fault. I mean, I don't share that optimism, but so no, I don't. I mean, I maybe I'm too cynical, but no, I don't. I don't. Tano Hasi, coach. Thank
1: you. Thank for you. Being <laughs>